From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, March 12th. So I I think that we all have a memory from a year ago of the moment when we realized that everything was going to change because of the coronavirus. I know I have that moment, like a distinct time and place when I was like, oh, wow, things are going to be different. And I feel like a lot of other people have that moment, too. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I was hearing about the bars closing in New York, it just felt like such a monumental thing. It was like the earth was stopping. This is Bishop Sand. He's an audio producer for The Post. And this week, we're looking back on a pandemic year. For New York nurse Jessica Montanero, she knew that things were going to be different when patients began pouring into her intensive care unit. It was like, oh, COVID's here. And it just went into complete chaos. Today, as we mark a year since the start of the pandemic, we're going to spend the episode looking back on the past year through the eyes of this one nurse. So who is Jessica and what was her day-to-day life like in her ICU before COVID? Jessica is 41 years old. She's been a nurse for almost two whole decades. And she works in this big ICU. It's 24 beds at Mount Sinai Hospital in Morningside Heights, Manhattan. We're right across the street from Columbia University, so you can imagine, you know, the things that we've seen. On any given day, she could get a patient bursting into her ICU without hardly any warning. Like this one time, she had to help set up a room for a patient who had a tear in his esophagus. Uh, Those tend to bleed very profusely, very fast. Doctors and nurses clambering all around him. She helps coordinate that. There had to be like 15 people in the room. All while, and just a warning, this is a little graphic. This patient is projectile vomiting blood. As we're trying to also place an artificial airway. I almost do better in those situations. Oh my gosh. This this sounds so intense. I mean, she sounds like someone who just sees intense stuff every day as part of her day-to-day job. Yeah, I know. I mean, she even describes herself as an adrenaline junkie. I, I feel like you have to be an adrenaline junkie to do a job like that. It's like your your brain has to work in a kind of different way to be able to face all these different situations every day. Yeah, definitely. But she also gets a lot of satisfaction from it. Pre-COVID, I would say that we had um, a lot of joy in fixing people, right? Like, we remember, we're a trauma. I see kids that have come in run over by trains or hit by buses or shot and stabbed in the heart. And they come back walking and, like, hugging you. affected more than 30 countries worldwide as Bahrain, Afghanistan and Iraq reported their first cases. Then in January, COVID-19 starts to make its way across the globe. There will be other cases, particularly in Europe. Starting in China, Jessica watches it spread to Italy. Italy has sealed off a dozen towns in the north of the country. Which, to her, it feels close because at the time, her parents were in Italy. My mom called and was like, what do we do? And like they booked it out of there and they came home. 
Good morning. Of course, it wasn't too long after that that COVID came to New York. Thank you all for being here. On March 2nd, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo gave a news briefing about the state's first known case. First, uh, we're going to speak about the situation uh, that was reported last night with a person who tested positive for the coronavirus. Uh, that, uh, that woman is a healthcare worker. She's 39 years old. Do you remember the first few patients that came? Oh, yeah. It was, uh, I would say, maybe the end of February, early March. It was like, oh, COVID's here. And it was one. It was one, right? Um, and then we got our second and third, and then it felt like we got 10 immediately. And then it felt like it just doubled. And it just went into complete chaos. I'd walk in through the double doors of the ICU and all of a sudden you would just see people running. All our pumps, you had like 68 pumps in the hallway with all this feed of extension tubing going from the pump to the patient, code carts everywhere, people running, teams running, alarms going off on every room. And I've talked to physicians who have been in medicine for 40 plus years, never have seen anything like this. I call it a tsunami. During a good two-month period, there was, um, I would say, a medical code, which is usually means that someone's heart has stopped, or an emergency called a rapid response being called every 30 to 40 minutes in my 12-hour shift. And that's... Unheard of. That's unheard of. That's like unheard of. It, it's kind of hard to think about this now, but you, you got to remember that in those early days, those weeks, uh, there's just so much we didn't know about this disease. Like for nurses like Jessica, it was just incredibly scary. We weren't even sure if we could like touch the doorknobs or if we could touch the pen that you just touched or if we picked up the same phone. Could I get it that way and die? And you know what strikes me about that is that it just must have been so scary to both be responsible for these patients and frankly not really knowing how to treat them, but also being scared of the patients and being scared that by touching them or getting close to them that you might get sick too. Yeah, and like to add to all of this, there's this extra uncertainty, the extra confusion, because the disease just wasn't predictable. It would hit people in seemingly random ways. Like there's this one patient she remembers, this man in his 60s. And he came in and he was awake. He was alert. He was talking to me. That was the first COVID that I can remember coming in awake, alert, and talking to me. And I remember he had just come back from Florida. And I knew that because I asked him where he was because he was like super tan. You know, in my mind, uh, what COVID was doing and the types of patients that it was ravaging just didn't fit. He didn't fit the mold. I left, gave him a thumbs up through the door and I left and I came back two days later and he was like half dead. Yeah, he was, he was on a ventilator. He was on like a ton of drips. He was, you know, they were pulling out all the stops. I remember also at that point going, oh 
my God, is this what COVID does? Like I've seen that level of sickness, but over the course of a period of time, right? You don't see it in two days. And in terms of what Jessica was scared of, I mean, did she end up getting sick at all? Or did anyone in her family end up getting sick? Yeah, her husband Paul got it from a family friend. He was full-on body aches, couldn't get out of bed. His um, skin hurt. He felt like um, putting on and taking off a shirt uh, was painful. And what was that like for Jessica having to care for COVID patients every day at work and, and dealing with the, the fear of people not surviving, but then also having her husband sick at home? Well, she really had to compartmentalize. As an ICU nurse, that's how you function, right? There's no room or time to break down when things are happening. It's like when a trauma comes in or you're getting a crashing patient, there's no time to be like, let me feel about this right now, (laughs) you know? Thank you for being here today. I think you know everyone who is here. So, like, there's this one specific um, briefing he gave on March 25th where he said that the projected number of ICU cases was going to just far outstrip the number of ICU beds that were available. Uh, Right now, what we're looking at is about 140,000 cases coming into the hospitals. The hospital capacity is 53,000 beds. That's a problem. We're looking at about 40,000 ICU cases coming into the hospitals. We have about 3,000 ICU beds. Uh, That's a challenge. What was going through your mind when you were hearing things like that? We were just going through it. He was saying it and we were like, yep, happening. You know what I mean? Like, yes, it's happening. You know, we're, it's there, we're there, right? So this was just, it was more about, um, you know, the turnover. Like, die, come in. Someone dies, comes in. Um, Or where do we put them now? Because we need room for someone else. And so we were just busting at the seams. So because they were being inundated with patients, and also because there were no established treatments for this disease, there were no guidelines of what they should do. And by this point in late March, Jessica and her colleagues... They needed to do something about it. They needed to adapt on the fly. And so what did they do to adapt? Okay, so, for example, take this patient, a man in his 40s who came into the ICU. So he came up intubated, right? And then um, a couple hours being with us, his oxygen saturation level was in the 70s and dropping. And, and that's and that's bad. That's yeah, bad. so we all should be like 94 and above, right? And 70 becomes almost incompatible with life. Um, and then the lower, the worse. And he was, and he was, you know, continuing to drop. If we did nothing, he was going to die. Now, it wasn't as commonly practiced before COVID, but it's actually easier for patients to flip over on their stomachs to breathe. They call it prone position. Coincidentally, Jessica was working on a paper about this before the pandemic. But nurses and doctors had to figure out how to quickly flip someone over when they're connected to all those tubes and wires, and how to do that safely. 
I remember having this discussion with the medical attending going like, okay, well, he doesn't have a central line. Okay, so what? So he's got two working IVs. Okay, he's not paralyzed. Okay, we'll push a paralytic, but we'll make sure he's well sedated. And we just ran in there and we proned him. And he was successfully extubated and survived COVID. Uh, not the case for many of our patients, we know, but he was one of them. So they were having these wins, these moments where they were able to do things differently and save people. But the losses were so enormous. I had, uh, I think, uh, a pivotal moment when one of our fellow colleagues died from COVID. He was a nurse manager working on the floor with his staff. And I'll never forget when that came through. And it had gotten to our staff in the middle of a working day. And... It was just like that, that just kind of just stopped us in our tracks. And um, I remember us calling like a huddle and like gathering together to take a moment of silence for him. And it became very real. You know, a lot of people knew this, this guy and they really had very wonderful things to say about him. And so I think it, it really hit home for a lot of people. And then New York State suspended all hospital visitors, except the immediate family of patients who were about to die. Jessica thought these policies were painful. They were horrible. They were horrible. Yeah. You know, I remember this 19-year-old girl, she had COVID. She had never been in the hospital before. And um, she just wanted her mom. And I remember going into her room and saying to her, my daughter's just about your age. I said, so I'm going to be your mom. You know, I'm going to be your mom today. She wound up getting out of our ICU, thank God. You know, she did well. But we really became the surrogate mothers, brothers, sisters, friends for these patients in the absence of their families. You know, I read about something that some nurses are feeling. It's called moral injury. What, what is that? It's when people are involved in traumatic situations that go against deeply held moral beliefs. Have you, have you felt something like that? Oh my God, yeah. Of course, of course, with every death, knowing that that um, there was a, a wife, a husband, a child, somebody who couldn't come in, you know, or be with that person or got five minutes to look through the glass and then was told they had to leave, you know, or, or the situation of asking of family members to decide which child was going to get to come upstairs. You know, hearing all this, it really just strikes me, like, how traumatic this must have been for Jessica and for other people in her position who had to watch as these families weren't able to say goodbye and weren't able to be there for each other in this incredible, horrible time. So I'm wondering, how did all of this affect her? Like, how did it feel to her? Well, this adrenaline junkie just kind of went numb. You know, coming home and having to sit in my car for a half an hour because the drive home to Westchester wasn't long enough to decompress. Um, Sitting in my car just stunned, just trying to get myself together so I could walk through the front door. Uh, Completely sleeping for the two days that I was off or being on the couch. And I've never watched Netflix before COVID. You're not going to believe that. 
no one has ever seen me lay on the couch in this house and lay on the couch for eight plus nine hours was like mom's dying. You know what I mean? Like there was like, I'd have to be dead to like do that. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com podcast for your free trial monarchmoney.com slash podcast. So what happened next to Jessica? Well, by early summer, things started to improve. Good morning. Uh, Let's take a look and see where we are today. Total number of hospitalizations down. That's the way we like to see it. Rolling average down. That's the way we like to see it. it. Changing intubations down, that's the way we like to see it. So by the spring, late spring, early summer months, our numbers definitely dropped. Um, In the beginning, it felt very weird to not be running. A normal day, which was normal and already intense, right? But normal before COVID, when it got back to almost that level, it felt strange. It felt like, wow, you know, it was like this whole new feeling in the ICU. Putting IV pumps back in the room, not having them in the hallway, really getting back to, you know, increasing the frequency of entering the room and um, some of those standards that were just not possible to keep up to for the surge of patients and, and the number of staff that we had. For the first time in months, Jessica had a chance to catch her breath. But doing that uncovered just how worn down she really was. It was uncomfortable at first. It felt uncomfortable. It, it felt The transition felt uncomfortable. But why, why did it feel uncomfortable? Because it was a sustained adrenaline, I think, for months. But that lull that she felt didn't last for long. June 4th, um, George Floyd's brother, Terrence Floyd, spoke in, in Brooklyn um, to, to thousands of people. Like, um, there are marches through the streets. Hmm. Um, do, do, did that register at all for you when you were going into the ICU? Like, was that a part of your reality at all? A hundred percent, yeah. When I was watching those protests in the street, as much as I supported the need to protest, right? And I understood as an ICU nurse who just came off this surge, like I was going, oh my God, like we are going to go right back to where we were because we're going to have a surge from this. 
just felt like the world was falling apart. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the whole world was falling apart. It's like, no, it was just one thing after another. It was just no, no break, you know? We are George Floyd. We are George Floyd. We are George Floyd. You know, I remember feeling that way too of seeing the protests and being in some ways really heartened by the size of the protests, but also being terrified that it was going to result in another surge or in a real spread in COVID. Did, did that end up happening? No, thankfully. We now know that these uh, protests, they didn't cause any kind of surge in the COVID-19 cases. So, so what happened next for Jessica? Well, after months of dealing with death in the hospital, Jessica was forced to confront it at home. It started one morning in October when her father was making coffee for her mother. He was done making the coffee and my mom found him sitting at the kitchen table and said, like, what's the matter? You look somber. And he that's when he said, you know, I'm, I'm disgusted with this virus. I'm disgusted with politics. And um, my mom said, OK, well, let's listen to a podcast. <laughs> and so they actually listened to um, an interview by Benet Brown and Bishop Curry. I have to admit, I'm just grateful to be alive. And one of the parts he said... If I dropped dead tomorrow, I'd have nothing to complain about. You know, I really wouldn't. I've been blessed. And my dad turned to my mom and said, you know, I feel like that. I feel like if I were to die tomorrow, my life was really blessed, Linda. He got up to change his shirt, and 15 minutes later, he collapsed. It was um, just a complete shock. I mean, we didn't have an, uh, an autopsy. I'm, I'm thinking just based on my mom saying where he co- where he grabbed himself when he collapsed and what happened. Um, maybe it was a, a, a aneurysm that burst, aortic aneurysm. I, I just can't imagine what it must have been like for Jessica in this moment, having been surrounded by death for months and months and then having this happen in her family losing her dad like this all of a sudden i mean how did she react to this well she reacted to it like it was a a problem to be solved i went right into like nurse mode right okay finances and figure things out and get all that stuff done that i think by the third week i just crashed i just crashed so i did i took time off um and, you know, how to go back. <laughs> I went back with a little different perspective. Um, the first day I went back to work, a patient died like within an hour and I couldn't go in the room. It, w- it was just too hard for me. You know, um, I was always the nurse with an intact family and crazy as they might be, we were all together, <laughs> you know, and uh and so I understand that, that grief and, and we're not over. I mean, we're, my mother's grieving terribly and um, our f- whole family has changed. Um, I think I'm numb. But Jessica didn't really have time to be numb because in the fall, the case count started going back up. And, you know, this time, and I've said this, the Calvary isn't coming because the country's a mess. But then she started seeing glimmers of hope, like things might be changing. CNN projects Joseph R. Biden Jr. is elected the 46th president of the United States. It was really hard to be under Trump um, as a healthcare worker because 
we were seeing death and our leader was telling people to not wear a mask and that this was going to go away and to drink bleach. So when Biden won, I was just happy he was out number one, but also felt like, okay, now we're going to have some leadership and some organization around this. And then... The FDA has officially given the green light for the emergency use authorization for the Pfizer coronavirus vaccine. It's approved. I think where it became super exciting and a reality was when it got delivered to my hospital and my friends were getting vaccinated. I've watched so many people who will never have this opportunity, who who succumbed to, to this disease that I had the privilege to get protection from. You know, the thing that I think is so weird about coming up on this one-year anniversary of the pandemic here in the U.S. is that it feels like we are all surrounded by COVID all the time, that we kind of get numb to it or we get numb to the the magnitude of what's changed. But hearing Jessica's story, it really makes it clear like how traumatic this has been for everybody, but particularly for the people who have been dealing with this as part of their jobs day in and day out every day for the past year. And so I wonder for her, looking back on the past year, like what has changed for Jessica? Yeah, I mean, it has been traumatic. It's been traumatic for everybody. And I think that it, when you face something like that, it just it just changes how you approach everything. How do you even start to think about going forward? Like, if there's even another, you know, there's talk of another surge coming because of the the UK variant, South Africa. I don't know. I don't have that answer to be honest with you. I don't. I think that there will be nurses that won't go forward because they can't. I know several nurses who quit ICU uh, because of this. You know, I I always consider myself to be someone that's really strong. And I'm like, some days I'm like, I don't even know how I'm going to do this today. Do you still want to be a nurse? Yes. I do. Um, I couldn't really imagine myself doing anything else. And so she keeps going. Jessica now volunteers some of her time at the hospital to vaccinate members of the public. We wanted to see the joy in the light at the end of the tunnel. And a few weeks ago, Jessica was able to give the vaccine to a very special patient, her own mother. Okay. Um, Are you pregnant? You better not be. (laughs) Because I am not having any more siblings. Um, Do you have any immunocompromising conditions other than, you know, being crazy? (laughs) No, I'm just joking. No, no. I'm fine. And how did it feel in that moment to vaccinate her? Uh, I mean, just, it was emotional. And I we didn't want to really bring up my dad, but I knew how important this was to her. You know, she, she's she been grieving, like we all have. All right, so how did you do with your first I was dose? fine, no no reaction, no reaction. Okay. 
Um, and are um, you nervous? Yeah, I'm nervous, but I also feel I do. I feel like this is a climax of <laughs> of uh, you know a big long ordeal. Um, how do you feel about getting your dose from me? <laughs> oh, I get to jab you. You know what? <laughs> I, I I'm not supposed to cry, so I won't cry. But I cannot believe it. It's been up oh, there she goes done <laughs> wonderful perfect wonderful 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 it's something i'm never going to forget you're the one it's like a, a amazing to me that this has been so scary and then my daughter gives me my shots to make me feel <laughs> immune from it Bishop, thank you so much. Thank you. Jessica Montanaro is a nurse at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City's Morningside Heights. Bishop Sand reported, produced, and sound designed this episode. Senior producer Robin Amer edited. Nearly a year ago, Post Reports did another story about Mount Sinai as the pandemic was ravaging New York. It's a pretty interesting time capsule into that moment. If you want to go back and listen, we'll put a link in our show notes and at postreports.com. Special thanks in this episode to Yasmin Abutalib, Ariana Cha, Yossi Sheffi, Michael Mina, and Michael Osterholm, and the podcast Unlocking Us with Brene Brown. This piece is part of special coverage marking a year since the coronavirus was declared a pandemic. For more on this project called A Pandemic Year, check out WashingtonPost.com. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Our producers are Lena Mohammed and Jordan Marie Smith. Ariel Plotnik and Renny Svernovsky are associate producers. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.